Hello and welcome to The Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Hi, everyone. I'm Harvey Asher, sexaholic. Uh, I've been sexually sober 36 years, 11 months, and a few weeks. If I make it another week and a half or so, it will be 37 years, one day at a time. My God, some of you weren't born 36 years ago. (laughs) Man. And um, it's all a miracle uh, that's not saved for me. People get so uncomfortable, and then we'll open in a few moments. People get so uncomfortable when I react to the term, but for the grace of God, I'm sober. It's the grace of God. I'm so afraid of that term because it could imply that people who relapse, that God's not giving them grace. And I don't believe that. I believe grace is given to everyone. And we have to be so careful when we bring God's name into especially our first few steps. Because if you don't work your damn ass off, you're not going to get this program. God is not going to keep your hand away from your genitals. How do I know that? He would have done it already. You would have needed the program. That's not how this program works. It works through the three legs of our recovery. God, one leg of this tripod. The steps, which is another leg. And the fellowship, which is sponsorship and meetings. And without all three legs simultaneously, that surveyor's tripod is going to tip over. Doesn't matter how much God is one. If you just do two legs, it's going to flip over. Whatever those two legs are, we need all three simultaneously. And in my case, I especially needed God through you. 
as just my old sponsor would say, he needed a God with skin. He needed to hear God talk through you all. And that's what I need. 36 years and 11 months later, that's what I still need. Okay. Today we are going to do a lot of work in one 30-minute period because we're going to do the, the last part of the fourth step and the fifth and the sixth and the seventh. Uh, if you think it can't be done, you're right. <laughs> can't be done in 30 minutes. But I can give you a style to do it. And that style is the first 164 pages of the AA book. It's a total cookbook. It actually tells you exactly what to do. And in this milieu, especially where most of us who come to SA, unlike an AA as much, I'm recovering alcoholic too, we draw from very religious people. Many, many fundamentalist religions are represented here. And so what we tend to do is bring our old ideas of religion into the template of a 12-step program, and it doesn't work that way. It's a totally different template. The template is not based on an intermediary. An intermediary, meaning a priest, a minister, a rabbi, an imam. There is no intermediary. It's us and the God of our understanding manifested as a loving God through our group conscience, our group conscience. So this is not about having a sponsor do your steps for you. This is you doing your steps, having your sponsor help you where you get stuck. Time and time again, I get calls from around the world. My sponsor won't answer my phone, or my sponsor says next month we'll do it, and then the month goes by, and he won't do the fifth step with me and do this and do that. This same template that you have from religion and other things and your employment, and your boss, and this and that, you bring it to this program. When this is your book, 
the first 164 pages that tells you how to do the steps. So you do not need me to spoon feed you these steps. First of all, you're not going to remember what I tell you anyway. Who are we kidding? So what is it? We're learning a style. Now, we're not, we touched upon the first and second column of this. I'm being sarcastic and facetious now, meaning I'm saying this as we would say tongue-in-cheek, that we're doing a very complicated thing. It's so complicated that they have it on one page with three columns. How much simpler can it get? It's so darn simple, people can't get it. This is a simple program for complex people. My sponsor would say, Harvey, see these signs on the AA wall? Easy does it. Keep it simple. One day at a time. He said, it's the truths of the world said simply enough that even an addict can understand it. We need to get it so simple because our brain is still so busy with all our obsessions and the sex thoughts and the work thoughts. And, you know, we're such great thinkers that we cannot figure out something this simple. So he says the three main things we work on is Resentment, which is the number one offender, fear, and sex. How much simpler can it get? And then they divide it into three columns. And those first two columns don't mean crap. It's only the third column and the fourth column that means anything. This, it's in the third column we find out about ourselves. We find out how all these things that we're so upset about in the first and second column has affected our sex relations, our self-esteem, our personal relationships, our security, our pride, all the words you see in column three. We get some clarity on what's happening inside of us. And so much of it is bracketed with the word Fear. Fear of losing something I have 
or fear of not getting something I want. But we're not doing those three. We're doing the fourth column. Now, when I did mine, I didn't do my fourth column till right before my amend steps to see who I should make an amend to. But we're going to do the fourth column now. Joe and Charlie has it that way. It implies it in the book. It just doesn't write it out. What is that fourth column? It's the part we don't want to acknowledge. So I'm going to give you an example. First column. I'm resentful at my mother. Second column, the cause. She took a bread knife and stabbed me when I was about 14. How did it affect me? Third column, my sex relations, my personal relations, my security, my pride, my self-esteem affected me. If your mother could do that, What do you think God could do? Oh, my goodness. He could do it even worse, more effective. Everything became tainted from that. But what's my fourth column? What is my role in it? My role is that... 60, 70, about 66, seven years later, I'm still talking about it. (laughs) That's my role. The dark thing doesn't exist. It happened, I'm 81, it happened when I was about 14. Doesn't exist. And what would I do? And if I weren't using this as an example, I wouldn't really be bringing it up. But I want this as an example because so many people suffer from sexual abuse issues in our fellowship. And quite often, that sexual abuse was done by family members because they probably were sex addicts too. Runs in families. This disease, it's a disease. What did I do? I poisoned my family about my mother. I poisoned my wife's mind about my mother. my side of the street. No, I did not cause it, no matter how my mind wants to twist it and turn it when I was 14. But what was my side? I did not let it go until recovery to be able to see she was a sick woman and she was abused 
and that she was a sick woman. She had thrown knives at people, her sister. She was abused by a brother. These are also sick people. But what was my fourth column? That I perpetuated the story. I made it real every chance I got when it no longer was real. Now, my wife does not like when I say things like it no longer exists. It happened in the past. So my immense, my wife, I don't argue with her about it. But I poisoned my wife's mind. My mother was dead about 10 years. And we were walking down the street and my wife was bad-mouthing my mother. And I started to laugh. I said, honey, she's been dead 10 years. Give it a break already. (laughs) But I had caused the poisoning. That is my side of the street. God, once I get in touch with my side of the street, what freedom I get. So in that fourth column, we work on what was my part. This is a very thin line because many people in this program not only are addicted to lust and sexually acting out, but are addicted to shame. So you've got to be very careful with this fourth step, this fourth column and this fourth step, not to judge it. It's just an awakening. Hey, this is what it did. This is it. No different than any other awakening. It is not a put down. It is an enlightenment, an awakening, not a shaming device. And then what happens? What happens is the most difficult thing for us to tell these most inner secrets that we have kept to another human being in the fifth step. See, it's real easy in comparison to tell yourself and to tell God, (laughs) but to look someone in the eye and say, This is what I did. Is very, very difficult. That's the fifth step. You could complicate it all you want. You could drag it out all you want. But they warn us. Once you do the fourth step and you find someone to do it with, do it. Quickly, 
quickly. What are we doing with these steps? I keep saying it over and over. We're letting go of ego. We're letting go of ego. And what's another word for it? We're humbling ourselves. What is the enemy of ego? It's humility. It's being willing to be transparent. It's being willing to not have any secrets from our sponsor. I do not have a secret. There are some things I might not have told you, but I've told it to a sponsor. Or to someone I've been close to in the program. So the fifth step is an integral part of letting go of this ego that makes us have difficulty having a God since we think we're it. So here we get someone safe. By the way, no one is safe. Because everyone's human beings. But I tell that person everything anyway. Now you're going to say, Harvey, how can you say no one's safe? Well, what do you expect from a guy who was stabbed by his mother? (laughs) I have an excuse for everything. See, could always go back to my mom if I want. (laughs) No, how can I say that? Well, our sexual addiction was done in such secrecy such privacy, such shame. And it isolated us and made it difficult to trust other people. But it really doesn't matter. I cannot live with these secrets. So I have to risk someone saying what I told them in confidence. I have to risk it. Because not risking it is more dangerous for me than risking it. Now, you try to find someone who's safe. Um, It's that simple. And you do it quickly knowing they're just human beings too. But for the most part, you do not hear a lot of this stuff being talked about. In my many years here, 
it really has been a relative safe environment. How do I know that? Because I was a very um, noticeable professional man in my community. And people would show up at meetings and um, I never got run out of town. because of what came out from the meetings. But let me tell you, if I didn't go to those meetings and share and have a sponsor and give my secrets, chances are I could have been run out of town. (laughs) You reach a point where you say, I have no alternative but to follow the book to surrender. Now, this, once we share it with people, with a person, it says a remarkable thing. Let's see if I find the page here. It basically says in uh, the chapter into action, Uh, That as soon as we do it, we review what we did, we make sure we haven't left anything out, and then we immediately do our sixth and seventh step. (laughs) This is a one-day activity. Step five, six, and seven, it's a one-day activity. It's not a dragged out thing. Those steps don't take that long. And the fourth step takes you a little longer, but you get it over with and you do your fifth step and then you do, within hours, you do your sixth and seventh step. Now, why would they say The sixth step is the step that separates the men from the boys. In our vernacular now, we'd say the adult from the children. Why would it say that? Well, one of the many reasons is it takes an adult to face what this step says. It says no matter how hard, how well you have done your first five steps, no matter how perfectly you did it, how wonderfully you did it, You can't change anything. No matter how much insight you have received in the fourth and fifth, the first five steps, you can't get rid of your own anger. 
You can't get rid of your jealousy. You cannot get, get rid of your greed or your lust. If you think you can get rid of it, you're back in your ego, where you, which is your, where your active disease lives. You're back in control. It's in the sixth and seventh step where you are so acknowledging the most difficult thing to acknowledge. Here I am, God. Bad, my bad and my good. Here it is. I can't do beans. But I'm ready for you, for it, for the universe, for whatever you want to call it, for it to be taken from me. I am willing for you to take, and it doesn't say my character defects is such, it says those that are interfering with my usefulness to others. Because some of our natural instincts and our character, what we call defects, are just beautiful instincts that have gone haywire. We need some of these characteristics. Can you imagine? If we didn't like sex, there'd be no world. No one would have sex and have children. Can you imagine if we didn't have greed? (laughs) No one would go out to work. People would starve. But it's when these character defects are interfering with our usefulness with others that the problem begins. I want to, uh, uh, for a moment, go back to something people don't talk about very much. It's called the fifth step promises. Once you have shared these most intimate, shaming things with another human being, there are promises. It says, we pocket our pride and go to it, eliminating every twist of character, every dark cranny of the past. Once we have taken this step, withholding nothing, one, but we are delighted, one, We can look the world in the eye, too. We can be alone at perfect peace and ease. Our fears fall from us. We begin to feel the nearness of our creator. Wow, what promises. Once we are truly honest with this other human being. Regretfully, in our first talk, when we talked about our difficulty being honest, <laughs> it makes it honest being with, in our fifth step. 
But this is such an important aspect of this process. And so we get to the sixth and seventh step. And quickly after the fifth step, and then hopefully on your knees, you end up saying, my creator, I am now willing that you shall have all of me, good and bad. I pray that now remove from me every single defective character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. Grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding. Amen. We have now completed step seven. My God, it's so simple. Why people make it so complicated? I don't get it. It's just simple. And we deserve the best. We deserve treating ourselves kindly. And how do we do that? We just go ahead and we do these steps. And if we don't do them perfectly, thank God, other than the first step, where we do it absolutely. You're either pregnant or you're not pregnant. You're either powerless or you're not powerless. That's simple. But other than that first step, thank goodness we have a tenth step that picks up all the things that we might have omitted, not on purpose, but because our brain wasn't ready for it. We always get this chance in our 10th step. Yeah, thanks, Malcolm. Um, good, good morning, Harvey. My name's Jason. I'm Palace Overlust from um, Newcastle, Australia. Um, sorry um, if it's, this question is not specific to question four, but I have a question about step one. Is that okay? Well, since you're doing it, it's going to be okay. We we need to try to stick with and then yeah. afterwards we could do other questions, but it would be oh. best if we stay. But go ahead, Jason. All right. Thanks a lot, Harvey. Um so the question is that I'm working with um two um people um uh currently that are incarcerated. Um yeah. and so I'm we don't we don't actually get to see the people's faces, so we only they do step work through step sheets. Um, so the last time we um, received letters from them, I had this funny feeling um, that that they weren't being thorough enough with their step one. So the the, the actual question is for you: is have you ever had anyone rework their step one? Please, thanks. Most people rework their step one, but as most people in the fellowship never get it. And they keep relapsing, and eventually they might get step one.
I'd say I hate being so blunt, but I don't hate doing it. It's just reality. Most people never accept this is a disease. Their brain isn't like normal people's brains. And that they are allergic to lust. Not to acting out, but to what goes between their ears, which leads to acting out. Now, someone last week or somewhere said, oh, they act out without thinking. It just comes. Um, When you get into your 11th step in mindfulness, you'll see this a bit more. We don't see the thoughts we're having. They happen so quickly. They're also layered thoughts. They happen very quickly. But it's very hard to, out of nowhere, just act out. So if you're going to the bathroom and suddenly masturbate, and you think you don't have a thought, right before you just masturbated, you had a thought. Gee, I could masturbate. I can't convince you of this, but I'm telling you, it's a big part of what I try to help sponsees with is to see the film at that first frame. Very difficult seeing the first frame of a fantasy. You're used to it going so quickly. But there is a still life photograph. See, we don't think. We think we think in words, but actually we think in pictures. That's why there are universal road signs, a hand up, etc., that everyone understands. We think in pictures. So if I say to you, don't think of the word elephant, you will immediately see an elephant in front of you. If I say, don't think of a hippopotamus, there is no way you will not picture a hippopotamus unless you knew, or the moment I said it, you pictured a giraffe or a lion, then you won't see the hippopotamus. But we think in pictures. People are just not aware they're thinking in pictures. And lust is all part of this process. Okay, but let's get to, oh, so about step one, first of all, The only way to know someone got it is if they got it. The minute I say they didn't do it right, then I'm judging them. And that's my ego. It has nothing to do with their program. 
They're either sober or they're not sober. You're pregnant or you're not pregnant. You don't have to worry about other people. It will take care of itself. They're either sober or they're not sober. Now, the other steps are progressive victory over lust. But it's hard to get progressive victory if you're not sober that day, which means you're not acting out. None of this really makes sense because it's all integrated. It's all interlocked. And it's hard to describe, but as in our 11th step, we get a a clearer view of this through prayer meditation, that everything is interlocked. There is no separateness. So we're trying to separate these nuances that really are difficult to separate. But for me to know I'm even lusting, I had to stop masturbating for 24 hours. And that goes back to what we shared the other week about putting the plug in the jug. If you're drunk, it's going to be hard doing some of these things. So first you have to just be willing to go through this death experience, inner death of withdrawal, and not act out for 24 hours. And then you start working on eventually the real problem, lust. I would not have understood this, what I'm saying, when I first came in. My problem was not going and having abusive sex and frequency with my wife, going to pornography places, having promiscuous sex with men, masturbating every few hours. I first needed to stop one day at a time, put the plug in the jug with the help of the fellowship before I could understand the depth of that first step about lust. Okay, fourth step, fifth and sixth, seventh step. Elmid, Elmid, you're next. Unmute yourself. Hi, Harvey. Hi, everyone. My name is Elmid. I'm sexaholic. I'm from Toronto. Uh, You talk about shame. Uh, I'm shameholic, too. I tried my best to surrender that, but all the time just shame from when I was very sick and even, like, uh, the shame that – when I was a child, all the time this popped, my, popped in my head. So what is the best way to just surrender that? Or I don't know, is it the way to just, just control it somehow? Um, thanks. Um, first, fun way to deal with it in, with fun is to ask yourself, what is shame? What is it? Can you put it in a box? Can you draw it? Where does it live? What the hell's shame? Until you start asking yourself some of these questions, 
it becomes a part of you that you don't even know is a part of you. Now, many people have different views, but guilt is thinking I did a crappy thing. Gee, I wish I hadn't done it. I'm sorry I did it. I did a crappy thing. Shame is I am. I am. I am crap. Now, I usually don't say it that way. I say, guilt is thinking I do a shitty thing. And shame is thinking I'm shit. Sometimes certain four-letter words describe things in a much better way. Now, shame is a lie. Because if we are created in its image, how can we be crap? And let's say you don't believe any of this God stuff, which is understandable. To say, how come when I'm not, when I'm taking my medication every day, I'm not doing the things I used to do? I'm a pretty okay guy. It's because my essence wasn't crap. My essence is I'm a good and worthwhile human being worthy of recovery today. Now, let's talk about shame, especially in terms of religion and cultural and society. That's how we're controlled, by being shamed. whether it's in some tribe somewhere or whether it's in our society, you're shamed. And what was shaming once was not shaming necessarily now. Shame is make-believe. My uncle in the 1940s had tuberculosis and had a, before they had medication and had to go to a sanitarium. You didn't even mention the word. It was shame. Someone wouldn't ever say they had cancer. We're taught this concept of shame. And our family was taught before us on shame. Now, other people could deal with it. We're not talking about the world here. We're talking about us addicts. Shame and fear go hand in hand. When we are in shame, we're frightened God's going to get us. And we're addicts and we get off on fear. So we stay drunk on the fear that God's going to punish us for the crap we've done. 
It's one terrible, vicious cycle that perpetuates us saying drunk. We stay drunk on fear and, and shame. And then, oh, well, I'm going to go to hell anyway. Might as well act out again. And not realize you're just going through withdrawal. When you say, oh, well, might as well act out again. Now, when you go to these treatment programs, they show you how shame is just ugly energy that's passed from one generation to another. And as I explained last week, I mean, I still do it. And you'll know my sponsees in a room. You'll see if someone says something at a meeting, and I remember doing it, and I get this horrible feeling in right here in my chest. That shame, oh, did I do that? Oh, I must be an awful person. The minute I say that, I brush that nasty energy right off. Right off. But you got to do it in a special way so it doesn't catch on you. Now, it's very much like the 12 and 12 where it says, for those who think prayer is ridiculous, they're usually people who aren't doing it. For people who think this is ridiculous, try it. You might like it. It really works. It's just energy. By the way, and we haven't spoken hardly at all as bluntly about this, but when you're by yourself or you're seeing a trigger and it goes to your genital area, that's also just energy. You cannot fight it. You can't say excitement go away, arousal stop. The more you say it, the worse it gets. But if you see it as an aspect of energy centers in your body, the different chakras, well, everything in my life gets stuck in my pelvic chakra and I could not in my first year or two could not sit quietly without getting aroused and I had to learn to sit quietly and let the energy notice it and then shut my eyes and picture that energy going up to my chest, out my heart chakra, or I pass it down my legs into the ground. It's just energy. Amen. It's not a play toy. It's just energy. It would be okay if it were a play toy if we didn't get in trouble. <laughs> Billions of people use it as a play toy, have no problem. They take it or they leave it. 
Not me. I had to have that play toy every few hours. Bess, I'm an addict. I'm not a normal man. I have a broken limbic system in my brain. And and the 12 and 12 says it so beautifully. Most people do not want to admit they're different than other people. We will go to any length to prove we're the same. But you know your friends who did very similar things that you did as teenagers or later on who watched pornography, who did other things, did not end up where we are. Most people who drank too much when they were teenagers don't end up where I was as an alcoholic. 10% do. Because that's a statistic. About 10% of the population have genetic alcoholism. By the way, and I tell you this every week, I'm saying this for me. There's most of you will never hear it. You can't hear it. The block is so big. The wall is so thick of society, religion, parents. You cannot accept anything but the sin model. The disease model is just one of the most impossible things for people in SA to accept. But I believe it. I practice it. God certainly doesn't love me more than he loves you. The difference is I believe I have a disease and I take my medicine every day. Most people don't accept the physical allergy accompanied by a mental obsession. Now, why do we do the steps for newcomers? (laughs) If you haven't been on other ones, because We can't get you sober, but the steps can help you stay sober because it helps you stay comfortable. And if you're not comfortable, the brain will automatically default to one of your addictions, no matter what the consequences. And if you don't believe it, watch people who are addicted to smoking cigarettes. They could be an end stage with emphysema and they still will smoke a cigarette. This is physiological. They are totally addicted. The withdrawal is too uncomfortable for them. And same with us. Whether you accept it or not, 
Now, some of you are not addicts. You might just be an abuser and be able to get away with this. I'm not one of those people. I'm a real sexaholic. For young people in the program, it's a concept of what level of the basement do you want to get off on? What are you willing to do to get not have to reach the bottom I reach? And for those who are young, want to say this is not a program of monks. You stay sober, you get a concept of recovery, you learn you're allergic to lust. We are, most of us here are not allergic to sex, we're allergic to lust. Next question. Oh, is it time to end? Yes, let's go ahead and close and restart. We will close, and then whoever wants to stay on for more questions can. Uh, Next week, we're going to do my two most... um, The steps I dislike the most... (laughs) (laughs) I do not like the eighth and ninth step. I'll tell you, I just don't like it. (laughs) And we'll talk more about the eighth and ninth next next week. Um, It would be wonderful for many of you to just read over the steps we covered today in the AA book in a different kind of way to read the um, fifth, sixth, and seventh. They're just a few pages in a way as you would a cookbook. Don't go deep in it. Don't start thinking too much. Just look how it's written. Just like if you were going to bake a cake. Keep it simple. Just see how it gives you directions. Real simple. Harvey, this is Emil from North Africa. It's always a pleasure to listen to you. I've been on the program for 20 years, and I have attended conventions and listened to your tapes, listened to you on YouTube. And I can tell you, in 20 years, you didn't change. You are not getting older, so... It's amazing. This is one of the best in all the program. God give you a long life and bless you. Two things. You talked about, uh, in a few weeks ago, you talked about <coughs> the intention. Let me give you a specific example. One among many other examples. Let's say I, I have a good intention to help families that are very poor and I have a family person who knows this poor household. So I go there and the woman opens the door and 
She's it's a very poor house. When the lady starts crying, I gave her I give her money and she hugs me. And the next thought is to have her phone number and have sex with her. So where do you draw the line or what's if I follow this I can do anything good uh because of my disease. How how do I reconcile sorry for my English, how do I reconcile that good intention and my bad instincts? Thank you again. You fell in the trap of using the word bad. You judged your disease as bad instead of observing it. Oh, there's my disease again. As we become mindful, it doesn't have the power over us. So when you're opening that door, the first thing is to be able before when you get out of your car, you're walking there to get on your knees and give it to God. Do the third step. Then you knock on the door. And you say someone in there might be very attractive. God, whatever it is I'm going to look for in her, may I find in you. See, you use your illness to transcend the illness. I will die with this illness. It's never going to go away. I'm going to see a pair of big breasts. There is no way I am not going to notice a woman with large breasts. There is no way I'm not going to notice a handsome young man. There is no way. But I, I transcend it. We do that all the time. If we're eating something and the person next to us is eating something and we're still hungry after we eat it, we don't take all the food off their plate and shove it in our mouth. We transcend that instinct. Sometimes we do it by doing gratitude. Thank you, God, for the food you gave me today. But you can't run from this illness. Wherever you go, there you are. And the magic is not magic, but it's magically wonderful. In the chapter Roy wrote in the essay book, How I Overcame My Obsession, with lust, and he gave many tools, many tools. Now, let's say you went to that house with good intentions, 
and no one was home. And she looked good and she flirted with you and you started kissing her. Then you know you're not ready to do that yet. To go to people's homes alone. It's so simple. Or if you're too uncomfortable, and luckily you don't end up having a kisser, you don't go somewhere alone. You take someone with you. The program is so simple, most people can't get it. We think it's about locking yourself up in a a monastery. Nothing wrong with that. But that's not what our program's necessarily telling us to do. Roy remained married till his death, the founder of our program. So you just find your limitations and you surrender it and you ask for people to help you. So I'll give you an example. If there's a very handsome young man or a beautiful woman at a meeting and they're hurting, especially if it's a young man, this young man is my heroine. I love having sex with women, but it's my marijuana. It's not my heroin. What can I tell you? Drugs have different things. So if I see an attractive man or woman across the room and they're in such pain from their illness and my mind says, Harvey, right after the meeting, you have to go talk to them to help them. You have all these years, you need to go help them. I then ask myself the question, Harvey, if you were an old man like you, 80, in rough shape, would you still cross the room to help him? If the answer is no, then I don't cross the room. If the answer is yes, I still don't cross the room. I take another guy or gal with me to talk to that person. I tell them what I want to say. I leave and let that person deal with the rest, the other person with the rest of the conversation. Because I can't trust my intentions. I'm a sex addict. Sexual addiction, like many other addictions, affect our judgment center in our brain. We just don't think clearly. It affects our judgment center. For those of you from other countries, am I talking too quickly? If so, please raise your hand so I could slow down. My speech pattern. Okay. Mm. Thank you, Harvey. Thank you. Okay. Is it AWOB? Yes, it is. 
you are next. Okay, thanks. Uh, thank you, Harvey. Um, I want to tell you about uh, something. Uh, last night I was doing my first step uh, with my sponsor. And uh, after I have told him about my mother and father and my friends and also my manager, uh, he told me that I have to surrender and forgive them. The problem is I can't forgive them. I just only don't remind me, don't remind myself with their memories and I keep going. But uh, this affect me in another way. Whenever I get into a relationship or uh, I try to deal with someone new, I can't to trust him and also I can't build a friendship I also think that uh, he's going to hurt me as I have hurt before um, and this led me to be lonely all the time and so how can I fix that because I can't uh, break this cycle thanks I don't know how you can just forgive someone. It's a process. For me, maybe you can. But it was a process. I had to read about the process of forgiveness. I had to first learn to forgive myself. I mean, this is... This is a um, growing awakening. So I'll tell you a little about the process I had to forgive all the abuse I experienced. Uh, I was an adult. um, My kid was in treatment center, and I went to a... uh, a parent Al-Anon meeting, and some woman gave me a um, now I'm going to give you another story. There was a woman um, at a conference and she told us I was sober a few years and she told us a story. She was a speaker how her brother sexually abused her as a child. And then when she, he grew up, she grew up, he continued to sexually abuse her. And her mother always knew about it and never stopped it. And I was, so she decided to have nothing to do with her mother or her brother for years. And one day she gets a phone call that her mother is on her deathbed when she go to the hospital. And she goes to the hospital finally to see her mother. And she's sitting on a chair and her mother's on the bed dying. And she didn't know what to do. She didn't know what to do. Finally, She sat on the bed with her mother and held her mother and told her mother all the things that she wished her mother could have said to her, but never did. She, in turn, said to her mother how she loved her, what a good woman she is, did all these, said all these beautiful things 
as her mother died in her arms. When I heard that story, I walked out and it was up in New York State. I walked to a telephone booth back then and I called my mother and I called this woman who had stabbed me. And I said, hi, mom, just calling you to tell you I love you. And for the first time in my life, she said, but how could you with what I did to you when you were growing up? And I was able to say, mom, hopefully, no, I said, mom, I forgave you quite a while ago, just like hopefully my children have forgiven me for what I've done with them. It was the closest thing she ever got to an amend. Okay. She never did have much to do with me and my family, my wife, my kids. But later in life, she became sick and she ended up moving to Nashville to where I lived. And she was about 89 at the time. And I kept dragging her to the hospital bed. She kept getting congestive heart failure. And her nurse, who knew me from recovery, said, Harvey, let her go. Let her go. You're waiting till she becomes a mother you always wanted. Let her go already. And so she was at the hospital, and I was at an SA 6.30 in the morning meeting, and Nancy ran in said, Harvey, they say your mother's dying right now and you better get to the hospital. I went to the hospital and she was dying, drowning in her fluids. And I was sitting next to her and I didn't know what to do. I was sitting in the chair and all of a sudden I remembered from 20 years before this woman's story And I got in her bed and I held her and I told her all the things I loved about her and all the good things about her. And I made any further amends and she died in my arms. It only took me 20 years in recovery. (laughs) What can I tell you? I'm a slow learner. And there is more to this story. If you ever hear, get one of my CDs on forgiveness. But this is a process. And it would be nice if you could hear your sponsor's words a little differently of saying, maybe, let try letting go of the anger or the hatred that I had. Try letting go of it and let forgiveness eventually. 
this program isn't about making something happen. It's about letting go of things. I had to first let go of the anger and the resentment before I could get to the forgiveness. You'd think after all these years, I'd stop tearing up when I told this story. <laughs> but it's the program. It's the most joyous program. If you ever doubt a loving God, just think. He loved us so much. He brought us to this program. What more do we want? Yeah, thank you, Alfie. What's the next question? Okay, Mikhail, you are up. Hey, Harvey. Um, you may have answered this last week. I missed the uh, the meeting, but I was just wondering what directions you would give a sponsee who says they have no um, resentments. Is he your sponsee or is he you? It's me. Oh. <laughs> Good question. I'm sorry. Just be grateful. I, well, I'm more like struggling with the fourth step and writing stuff down. And I think I may be fooling myself and thinking that I don't have any. And so I was wondering if there's a way to unlock those, if there's a trick or something. Well, don't get manipulated into, well, it's supposed to be resentment. I better find the resentment. There are two other sections there. One is just about it. There are three aspects, actually. One's about anger. It doesn't even have to be a resentment means revisiting that anger. There just might be things you're angry at that you could deal with and not worry about the word resentment. But there's also that big section on fear and sex. Also in the 12 and 12, we have those seven things that you can work on. Pride, gluttony, procrastination, you know, lust, etc. Okay. Thank See, you. Part of us are people pleasers. We we learned that was our survival technique to hide what we were doing. And so we became people pleasers and had to feel we have to do exactly what it says at that time exactly. It's freeing to say, oh, there are other things I can work on. Uh, there were quite a few things I couldn't work on if they would sexually stimulate me. When I started doing some of my first and fourth step on sex, I just couldn't do some of it. It was too dangerous. It was too arousing for me. I had to learn to let it go and come back another time. 
are seeing this underlying theme I'm playing out. Don't make this into another religion, a 12-step program. Read it yourself, see what they suggest, work with your sponsor, but then just say, hey, I'm not ready for that piece yet. I spoke about it last week. There was, uh, from uh, the 1980s, there was this writer, um, a psychiatrist, who wrote a book, Finding the Child Within, who said it takes from three to four to five years of recovery to start dealing with certain family issues that you need a certain amount of spiritual healing before we could even remember what happened. It's just too much. If you want to see what I mean in a more practical way is See what happened between the time Bill W. wrote the big book, which was in the late 30s, and 1950, 51, when he did his second book, The 12 and 12. He emphasized many different things that he did when he was 10, 15 years earlier. So give yourself permission to not wear my sponsor over and over. Work with me on. Don't wear this program like a straitjacket. Wear it like a loose coat. If you wear it like a straitjacket, you will eventually break out of it. Wear it as a loose coat. That doesn't mean have a loose coat so you could touch yourself. It means a loose coat that you're not living in in bondage of, oh, did I do this right? Did I do this wrong? Did I, you know. Next question. Yeah, we've got about uh, four. Four more questions. Joshua, you're up. Then let's end it after the fourth one. Okay. Okay. okay thank you so much, uh, Harvey. I'm, I, I love uh, hearing you. I met you in person when I was in rehab in uh, Nashville at the ranch. Um, so my question is, I heard you say uh, last week or the week before that um, uh, the fourth step involves um, um, resentment, fear, and sex, and you kind of um, uh, qualified it by um, by saying that I look for the um, anger response. That's that's my fight um, my fight reaction um, to to life. I look for my flight reaction to life, which is my fear. And I guess that um, sex is uh, I'm looking for those missed connections that I've made um, in life. And so I was doing the um, fourth step now on that basis. And um, 
and I, I'm up to my harms uh, inventory. And, um, and it's more than just describing, you know, the sex um, that I've done, you know, the sex uh, harms that I've done. Um, I'm trying to like just get a picture of myself, of the harms that I've perpetrated in life in general. And um, as a result, I'm not using any particular form with columns. I'm just uh, writing it out. I just wanted to hear your feedback on that. I felt a little heaviness when you used perpetrated. Um, when you do it formlessly, there's a tendency you could start um, going back to religiosity, perpetrating evil, bad, sin, um, I just like to say, what role did I have in this? And I'd like to keep it kind of light or my ego will try to drag me to other places that are not disease modeled. I am responsible for my behavior. I am responsible for what I did. But that is taken care of in my amends. I am responsible. Just like a diabetic, if they're having too much sugar and the insulin wasn't enough, and they ran someone over. They, they're responsible. Their insurance company's going to have to pay. But it was their disease that was out of whack that caused it. They didn't cause it. The disease caused it. Now, in recovery, we have a great responsibility once we accept the first step to say, I'm going to take my medication today, or this is what happens. I become a tornado. I destroy things. It's a manifestation of my disease. By the way, what I'm saying is not truth. It's how I stayed sober. Other people might have very different approaches, which are just as valid. But this is my approach. And my sponsors over the years help. This is not right or wrong. It's how Harvey's experienced strength and hope. I did. I'm such a low-bottom drunk that there was no way my brain was going to deal with what I did if I didn't have a recovery program 
that helped me have this template. Giving my wife venereal diseases time and again, embarrassing my children by them hearing stories about me, bringing people home to our home to have sex with. And yet, I bet you're not hearing any shame in my voice. I was in a delirium for years. I was so juiced up with all this drug in my head that even today, I cannot believe some of the stuff I did. I said, did I really do that? I was delirious. I never stopped having endorphins soaking my brain. If it weren't with other people or my wife, it was with masturbation. Once you accept that this is a drug addiction, not a morality issue, It causes moral problems, but it is a straight drug addiction. And this isn't Harvey only. This is in the essay book where he talks about tolerance and withdrawal, craving. And the AA book. Okay, next question. Joshua, did I run around that question or did I get close to it? No, it was absolutely awesome. Uh, Just what I needed to hear. Okay. Next question. Paul, you are up. Yeah, hi. Yeah, Paul Sexholic uh, from Romania. My question is this. When do do you know... uh, if a character defect is a full-blown addiction and not just a character defect. Oh, God. And, and, and related to that, should I work the steps in two fellowship at once or should I finish the steps in one fellowship and then go to the other fellowship? I, you know, like people-pleasing. Yeah, I needed, uh, I needed two fellowships. I would have died if I tried taking care of my lust addiction in AA. I wouldn't have made it. It was not a character defect for me. It was another addiction. And many of us are addicted to rage and anger. And in Nashville, we used to have a program, a, a break-off from SA in the more, before the meet, regular meeting, uh, Anger Busters. We used a little book that uses anger as a tw- uh, in a 12-step way. Um, so, you know, it's a very good question. I can't talk for you, Paul, but I needed more than one program. Just like I needed Al-Anon to help me with my codependency with my children. But how do we know just by being powerless in that direction or the program not working on that character defect? 
That's a good way of putting it. To see, can't hurt you to try an additional program. This is a very significant issue because Bill W. dealt with this. And it's uh, in the tri- in the traditions where it talks about our primary purpose. And this was a big problem in the 80s when I first got into AA, that a lot of overeaters and bulimics were coming to AA meetings and they were taking the meetings over and talking about um, binge purging. And it finally got to the national AA and they sent to the, around the country something we had to read at our meeting, each meeting that said we had to keep the subject to alcohol. That never happened because you can't tell an alcoholic what to do, but it kind of kept it down some. But yeah, this is a, a real issue. How can we work on lust if, if it's a character defect, it will work in AA, let's say. But if it's another primary addiction, most people in AA could masturbate without a problem. So they're not going to tell you, oh, no, man, you could die if you keep doing that. It's not their addiction. So you try to keep the primary purpose. Paul, can you be more specific about yourself, what you're talking about? Yeah, sure, sure, sure. I'm definitely a people pleaser. Once I I got in sobriety with uh, the uh, sexualism, uh, I got into so much people pleasing that I was emotionally destroyed. Number one, I'm an enabler. I'm a rescuer. I wanted to rescue. This is coda material. No, it's codependency all over. I'm a rageaholic. You know, I, I, I believe I'm a rageaholic. You know, I, I burst into rage. My, my former sponsor that has like 10 years of sobriety, he say, told me, well, maybe rageaholism is, is like insane ego. And I do believe it's insane ego. I, I have an insane ego, you know. Um, uh, but okay. I do, but I think I need more than than just you know working. And I don't know the definite answer, but what could it hurt to try? Now in, in the states, it's much easier because we have these five seven day treatment programs that deal with codependency issues like that. I went to one myself, and um, I I went to two years for uh, codependency type therapy. Um, But, you know, you'll have to see as time goes on. There's a wonderful book since the meeting's over. I I don't mind saying books. It's called Anger Buster 101. It's written in many languages. So, but it, it uses rage as a drug and uh, gives you waves of 
kind of take, avoiding taking the first drink. Next question, please. Jonathan, you're up. Yeah, thank you, Harvey, for your um, for your inspiring talk. Um, I have two questions. The one is um, similar to the one before. Did you work AA and AS one after the other, or did you work them simultaneously? Did you have simultaneously a sponsor in both of the programs, and do you sponsor in both of the programs? That's uh, that's one question because I'm I'm a drug addict, and I've been for 25 years and a 12-step program for drug addicts, staying clean from drugs. And just last year, I discovered that I'm a sex addict and joined SA. The other question is about persons whom I owe amends but who died. What about them? How, how do I do my amends then? Thank you. We're going to cover that next week, that second part, John. All right. Okay. Thank so. you. Uh, but I wrote letters, by the way, to people who died. Just not to brush your question off totally. Uh, but we'll talk more about it next week. Um, but I did write letters. The, um, and I made some living amends. Okay. Um, I have... Uh, I came into AA first, I sobered up, and seven months later I was still acting out, and people in AA just were flipping it off, saying, oh, that's no big deal. And um, I needed a second program. I've always had two different sponsors, an AA sponsor and an SA sponsor. I never asked them the same question. And it's very difficult with an AA sponsor who one of my sponsors had four wives and, you know, many people still masturbate. It's very difficult to, for me to have an, use an AA sponsor for SA. So I've separated it. Um, and about sponsees. Um, even though I'm sober for 37 years, I get, I sponsor about 18 people in SA, some of them are alcoholics, but after the first few years, God's worked it out, no one from AA, and I go to quite a few meetings a week, ever asked me to be their sponsor. <laughs> so it kind of took care of itself. But I do have people I sponsor who are in both programs, and I deal with both issues. Only one time, um, there is a man in a foreign country I sponsor, and I said, I think it's good for you to get a separate AA sponsor who's right where you live. You know, and use me as your SA sponsor. No, as you... Okay, Jonathan, was there anything else? Yeah, newly, newly, I tend to view many, many of the friends in the, in the NA fellowship, where I'm a fellow as well, as sex addicts, because they lament about their use of pornography and so on. But 
this is a judgment. I, I shouldn't, I mean, it's not my, it's not my issue to judge them, right? Or, or no, how I to behave. I don't judge them. I 12 step them. Yeah. You do tell them, like, about your weakness and... Uh, oh, my God, yes. They, people walk backwards away from me a lot of times. <laughs> oh, sure. I'm, anytime someone's talking about getting in trouble from sex after a meeting, I go up to them. I say, I'm in the program. Uh, I was highly promiscuous. I was a chronic masturbator. Yeah. Um, abuse my wife in frequency. Uh, if you think you have a problem, let me know. I'll give you a brochure. Mm. All right. Thank you. Jonathan, why do I do that? Because why? it keeps me sober. Yeah, sure. Okay? It also cuts the shame. We were talking about the process the less secrets, as long as it's appropriate. Now, at an AA meeting, every I do a big book meeting in AA. I mean, I go to one, and it's usually 50, 60 people every Sunday morning. And once a year, we well, we only do 164 pages. So about twice a year, we get into the sex part in the AA book. I don't say it to the whole group, I'm a chronic masturbator before the program, but I say at, um, I had a problem with lust and I could not get sober in AA from it. And it turned out I had another addiction and I go to SA meetings for that period. That's all I say. That's enough for people to come up and ask me about, about it. And then I get a chance to 12-step. This shame issue is so deep that you will see how it tends to prevent you, even in appropriate settings, to share some about it. I don't advise people doing what I did of saying, oh, I'm a chronic masturbator. A lot of times I just say I had a problem with lust and I go to another program. I don't go into any details. Uh, it depends on the situation. Uh, we had a man who's still sober as over 30 years in Nashville and he used to put IV Robitussin in its veins and then masturbate at the same time. And he'd pass out, end up in hospitals. Well, he was asked to talk about sexaholism <laughs> at our famous Titan football team, professional football team. And he started telling them, about the IV Robitussin he chewed in and masturbating. It did not go well. And he said he'd never do that again. 
<laughs> so everything has its place, you know. <laughs> okay, I okay. think one last question, or was that it? No, Michael, you're up. Thank you, everybody, for, for being here. Thank oh, you. oh. Go ahead. Okay, sorry. Um, yeah, no, um, caught me a bit by surprise, actually. Um, didn't, didn't think I'd get asked, but it's, it's just about, it's getting, getting a bit late here in Scotland, in Northern Europe. But um, just wanted to What's ask, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just on step two at the moment, and... Um, um, and I was really struggling with my marriage. Um, my wife telling me that she's only only with me because she because for the financial security. Um, she she's really, she's totally stressed. Um, two days ago, she was spitting in my face, telling me she's going back to Argentina. She's pregnant. We've got a seventeen-month-old son. Um, and she was like, you know, she started saying, I can't handle your mental health, your defects, your pornography. I used pornography in October last year. That's when I'm sober since. Um, I don't know. I just wanted to just get honest and just sort of, hey, you know, I'll be on step four soon. I mean, I mean anything, anything I'm missing, anything I'm missing, Harvey? What do you think? Oh, my. Can you mute for a bit because there's so much noise, Michael? Um, my sponsor would always say to me when I complained about my wife, he'd say, who but a sick woman could have lived with you all those years? I'm a sick man. Uh, we tend to have less toleration for our sick wives than we expect them to tolerate us. The proof of the pudding is she's still with you. My sponsor would always say we would never statistically put up with our wives doing with us what we did to them. So, the word that the the trap you got into was that rough word on struggling. We can't struggle in this program. This we always lose. We always lose the fight. We surrender. Okay, we surrender for 24 hours. We don't try to argue with them. We don't try to convince them they're wrong because we're geniuses for trying to make them think they're crazy, which they usually are after living with us. Plus, they bring in their own suitcases, their own baggage, their own luggage to a marriage. So if she's Argentinian, can you imagine 
bringing a, an Argentinian to to Scotland, how hard that is on someone. But we are just so egocentered. How lonely and alone. You know, my wife, I was, I'm a professional man. Well, I'm retired, Pat, since COVID. But a professional guy and my wife couldn't share anything about what was happening. And only one she could share with was her beautician. <laughs> she told the beautician all this stuff. But God, you know, it's tough. And, you know, you reminded me, after a while, you have to just put this stop on the spinning on you. I mean, there's just a point where you have to say, hey, honey, this is it. Uh, but the my sponsor always would say, we spit in God's face and all he'd do would wipe it off and just hold us and love us even more. So you could handle one spit. And just be sure you tell her the most difficult thing that men in this program have to compliment their wives. They're too busy trying to convince their wives to be able to say, you're such a good mother. I'm so glad I had married you. This must be so hard on you. You're so beautiful. I'm so glad you're such a good human being. Now, you're going to say, well, do I... Am I lying? Am I making it up? No, you're not. If you take your glasses off and you turn them the other way, <laughs> it's right out of, you don't wear glasses, but it's right out of that book. We had to get a new pair of glasses in the, in the chapter where it says, how come when I first saw my wife, she was beautiful and wonderful and the best thing ever, and 20 years later, she's like a witch. She's terrible. She's ugly. She's no personality. And he said, maybe I have my glasses on backwards. Maybe I need a new pair of glasses. Love and tolerance is our code. But at some point, you draw some lines. But... She's not going to leave you right now. You know that. She's pregnant with a 17-year-old. Stop fooling yourself. That woman's trapped. Can you imagine what it feels like to be trapped? And this is not a shame message. This is a reality message. I've been trapped in another country with chest pain where I had to leave the country suddenly to go get a surgery. You feel trapped. She's not. But she feels that way during your recovery. Right now, she feels left out. 
and be sure you're giving her a lot of positive reinforcement. And don't try to convince her you're well. That's not your job. How can these women ever trust us? I'm a liar, a thief, and a cheat. Today, I don't do that knowingly. And I'll end with this story I told you maybe last week or a few weeks ago. I had a sponsee who, his wife, who was seven years sober, she was very religious, and she would keep saying to him, why don't you do it through church? And how do I know you're really sober? I can't be sure you're really sober. Year after year, I hear him tell me this. So after one of these talks with him, I went to my wife. I had been sober about 20 years. I said, Nancy, how do you know I'm really sober? How do you really know it? And she surprised me. She said, I see you hit your knees twice a day doing your prayers. I see you running off to meetings all the time. And I eavesdrop on your telephone calls when you talk to your sponsees. <laughs> I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.